Before we get to this week's episode, I want to remind listeners that Ben and I are going to be recording a Q&A episode in the next few weeks. And so if listeners have any questions, concerns, or even criticisms about either past episodes or about philosophy of religion in general, uh, these can be sent to realatheology at gmail.com. Now, to have a chance of getting on the episode, we need your questions or your comments in audio form. So go ahead and grab your laptop or your cell phone and record yourself. Uh, first, introduce yourself and then make your comment or ask your question. So far, we have a bunch of fantastic entries, and so we're really looking forward to uh, recording those future episodes. Now, on to this week's episode. This week's episode is a debate, uh, it's not a live debate. Rather, what you are about to hear is an audio performance of an already written debate that's been going on behind the scenes for the past month or so in the form of a series of essays in reply to each other. The debate was on the problem of evil, and it was between myself and Cameron Bertuzzi. You'll hear my opening first, and once that's completed, it will jump right into Cameron's. Now, the debate is at least an hour long, and frankly, it could have gone much longer, as I'm sure... Uh, both Cameron and I would have further replies to each other's arguments. Um, but a little bit about Cameron. He's a professional photographer and founder of Capturing Christianity. And this is a ministry aimed at exposing the intellectual side of Christianity. He's a writer, speaker, and uses his ministry to host discussions and interviews on topics related to Christian apologetics. Cameron is married to a beautiful wife and is the father of two adorable children. And so without further delay... Here is my debate on the problem of evil with Cameron Bertuzzi. I want to begin by expressing my appreciation to Cameron Bertuzzi for his agreeing to participate in this debate. I look forward to what promises to be an interesting exchange. Rather than a debate on the broad question of the existence of God, we've agreed on a topic narrower in scope, though admittedly still complex. We've agreed to debate the question of whether or not some of the facts about suffering in the world constitute any evidence at all against the existence of the God of traditional theism, or theism for short. Cameron, a Christian theist, believes that the answer to this question is no, that despite initial seemings to the contrary, there is no real sense in which facts about suffering count against the existence of God. The boldness of Cameron's position should not go unappreciated. Cameron doesn't merely claim that there exist powerful theistic arguments which, when taken aboard, overwhelm the evidential force of any and all arguments from suffering, but rather he denies that there is any evidential force in facts about suffering to be overwhelmed in the first place. This is an ambitious claim, about as ambitious as it is untenable, in my view. By theism, I mean the claim that there exists an immaterial person, infinite in power and knowledge, and unsurpassable in moral character, who created the physical world for a purpose. For this debate, I'll be comparing theism's ability to explain or predict three sets of facts against the same abilities of a certain rival non-theistic hypothesis I'll call naturalism. Admittedly, I'll be using the term naturalism in a broad sense. By naturalism, I mean roughly the claim that physical reality has ontological priority, and any existing mental reality is ultimately explained by this physical reality. My first argument begins with known facts about the biological utility of pain and pleasure in moral agents. Pain and pleasure can be thought of as internal signposts that routinely guide sentient beings toward two key biological goals temporary survival, and reproduction. Put simply, they motivate particular kinds of behavior. This is obvious enough. For example, food and sex, because they contribute to the biological goals of survival and reproduction respectively, are very often very pleasurable. By contrast, most injuries to the body are typically quite painful, and a lack of sexual release after intense arousal can leave an organism with a fair degree of discomfort and feeling rather blue. Those with pain and sensitivity disorders have reduced life expectancy for these reasons. Paul Draper writes, quote, We know antecedently that humans are goal-directed organic systems composed of parts that systematically contribute to the biological goals of these systems. 
Now, this background knowledge leads the naturalists to expect, by way of analogical reasoning, the same to be true about the bodily systems governing the experiences of pain and pleasure, that they would be oriented toward these same biological goals. And that is, in fact, what we see. Notice that any moral significance that pain or pleasure may have does not affect the naturalist's expectation that pain and pleasure are fundamentally biological phenomena, and therefore function as any other biological system with biological goals. As Draper puts it, quote, a biological explanation of pain and pleasure is just the sort of explanation that one would expect. However, it is not at all obvious that this analogical reasoning is available to the theist because of the moral significance of pain and pleasure in conjunction with the theist's belief in an omnipotent and morally unsurpassable God. It would seem we have much more reason on theism than we do on naturalism to expect that these sensations would be finely tuned to primarily guide moral agents toward moral goals rather than mere biological goals. With respect to pain, any instance being merely biologically useful is at least prima facie unlikely to be permitted by God for at least two reasons. First, God's proverbial hands are not tied to using biologically useful pain to produce goal-oriented systems. And secondly, on theism, moral considerations would have significant priority over biological considerations. Moreover, with respect to pleasure, theism gives us more reasons than on naturalism to expect experiences of pleasure even if they are not biologically useful. It's possible that on theism, God's moral motivations for doling out pain and pleasure just happen to be in near exact lockstep with promoting biological goals. But this would be to posit a massive coincidence. This coincidence, I might add, is one that naturalism does not need. Because naturalism more than theism leads us to expect the impressive degree of biological utility of pain and pleasure in moral agents, this is a clear piece of evidence which counts in favor of naturalism over theism. My next argument appeals to known facts about the flourishing and languishing of sentient beings. There are many more ways for a sentient being to languish than for a sentient being to flourish. Additionally, all biological organisms are in savage competition with each other for a limited number of the resources for necessary for life. In River Out of Eden, evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins writes, quote, The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive, many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear, Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. If there is ever a time of plenty, this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. With respect to the condition of sentient beings, then, we know the following. 1. Only a fraction of sentient beings have an adequate supply of food and water, are able to avoid predators, and remain healthy at some point in their lives. Two, even fewer have these things for most of their lives. And three, even fewer still have these things for all of their lives. It would seem, though, that we have more reason on theism than we do on naturalism for thinking that sentient beings are, in some important sense, supposed to flourish. As Paul Draper notes, quote, A loving God, being perfect in moral goodness, could not care more deeply about sentient beings having good lives, and being perfect in power and knowledge could not be better positioned to ensure that sentient beings have good lives. By contrast, if naturalism is true, no such person as God exists, so these facts about flourishing and languishing are entirely expected, especially in light of our background knowledge about evolutionary processes where overpopulation and the finitude of resources systematically and indifferently drive sentient beings to routinely languish on the edge of continued existence. Because naturalism more than theism leads us to expect the aforementioned facts about flourishing and languishing, this is another clear line of evidence which counts in favor of naturalism over theism. My next argument appeals to known facts about the horrendous evils that befall some finite persons. 
In her 2000 book, Horrendous Evils and the Goodness of God, Christian philosopher Marilyn McCord Adams defined horrendous evils as, quote, those evils the participation in which gives one reason prima facie to doubt whether one's life could be a great good to one on the whole. So we are to focus for this argument on those most awful forms of suffering. Adams lists paradigmatic examples of such evils, including but not limited to events such as 1. the rape of a woman and the axing off of her arms, 2. the psychophysical torture whose ultimate goal is the disintegration of personality, 3. child abuse of the sort described by Ivan Karamazov, 4. child pornography, 5. the participation in the Nazi death camps, 6 the explosion of nuclear bombs over populated areas, 7. Having to choose which one's children shall live and which shall be executed by terrorists, 8. Being the accidental and or unwitting agent of the disfigurement or death of those one loves best. The world is filled with such horrendous evils, and I choose their tragic existence as the last line of evidence for my opening comments. Given naturalism, it is not at all surprising that some of our behavioral tendencies can lead us in a variety of circumstances to act against each other in horrible ways. Theism, however, seems to lead our expectations down a very different path. In other words, it seems that we have much more reason to expect horrific evils on naturalism than we do on theism. To help us see this, consider that God would not only have, by virtue of her omniscience, full propositional knowledge, but full knowledge by acquaintance of each possible instance of horrific suffering. This fact, in conjunction with God's unsurpassable compassion, establishes the far too often ignored entailment of divine attributes, the unsurpassable empathy of God. Given that the greater an individual's empathy, the more potent their opposition is to horrific suffering of the sort mentioned above, how much greater then must the opposition of God's be to such horrific evils? At this point, it is important to notice what must be our deepest good as finite persons, were such a being as God to exist. Philosopher John Schellenberg writes, quote, We are not in the dark about what is the greatest and deepest good any personal being can experience given the existence of God. It would be a positive, ongoing, indeed unending and constantly growing relationship with God. Now, given that theists are committed to the belief that these kinds of horrendous evils are not a requirement for finite persons to achieve an ever-growing intimacy with God, it would seem that theism gives us less reason than does naturalism to expect our world to contain such horrendous evils. Because naturalism more than theism leads us to expect horrendous evils, this is yet another clear line of evidence which counts in favor of naturalism over theism. Now, there is no single evidential argument from evil. Rather, the evidential argument from evil is a family of arguments, the members of which can vary in strength, subject matter, structure, and in their susceptibility to the various theistic responses with which we are all familiar. These three lines of evidence, each favoring naturalism over theism, are a multi-tiered approach. The first tier considers first-order concerns about the facts of pain and pleasure with respect to their biological utility. The second tier considers second-ordered concerns with respect to the well-being of sentient life. And finally, the third tier considers third-ordered concerns about our cognitive awareness of horrendous evils and their relation to a life worth living. Unless and until Cameron can demonstrate that none of these considerations count against theism in any real sense, then it would seem that I have fulfilled my burden of justification. First, I'd like to thank Justin for agreeing to discuss the topic of whether evil and suffering provides evidence for naturalism over theism. I've followed Justin's work for a few months now, and while it's a little intimidating to be crossing swords with him, I think that we and the audience can greatly benefit from a reasoned exchange on this topic. One of the things I most admire about Justin is that he takes philosophy seriously. He doesn't stop at Harris and Hitchens. No, he's studying the work of good philosophers like Draper and Schellenberg. I think we're in for a great discussion. Some have wondered how it was possible that a good God could allow horrific suffering. How can an all-loving God permit something as vile and unnerving as the Holocaust? The late philosopher J.L. Mackey thought that suffering and evil were logically incompatible with God's existence. He argued there was a logical contradiction between the proposition God exists and evil exists. 
According to Mackey, both of these propositions can't be true, and so, since the existence of evil is literally undeniable, it must be the case that God doesn't exist. Most philosophers today recognize that this logical version of the problem of evil is dead. Paul Draper, an agnostic philosopher, said, quote, Although logical arguments from evil seemed promising to a number of philosophers in the 1950s and 1960s, e.g. Mackey, they are rejected by the vast majority of contemporary philosophers of religion. End quote. I won't belabor the point. Logical versions of the problem of evil do not carry much weight anymore. Atheologians have since turned to evidential or probabilistic versions of the problem of evil. Justin's argument is probabilistic. He argues that evil and suffering constitutes evidence for naturalism over theism. Before moving on, I want to lay out a few of the options available to theists in responding to probabilistic versions of the problem of evil. Option 1. Accept the conclusion that God's existence is improbable with respect to evil, but then point out that this conclusion by itself is insignificant. It wouldn't follow that naturalism is true or even likely true. Many philosophers have made a similar point. See Alvin Plantinga and Daniel Howard Snyder. Belief in God could still be the sensible, rational thing to believe. Option 2. As an extension of option 1, option 2 says that our total evidence still supports God's existence. Arguments like the Kalam cosmological argument, the argument from contingency, the fine-tuning argument, the argument from moral knowledge, and others are very improbable under naturalism. When all of the evidence is taken into account, the total evidence still supports God's existence. Option 3. Argue that the probability of evil and suffering given naturalism is lower than originally thought. It's not the case that we should expect the degree of human suffering we do see given naturalism. Option 4. Argue that the probability of evil given theism is actually quite high. This will be the aim of theodicy. Theodicies identify great goods that God would want to bring about, but these great goods also entail human suffering. Option 5. Endorse skeptical theism. It should be noted that options 1 through 5 don't exhaust the options available to theists in responding to probabilistic versions of the problem of evil. Given 1 and 2, which I think are both good options, even if I lose this debate, no one is obliged to accept naturalism. That conclusion requires a lot more work. But be that as it may, this debate will focus on options 3, 4, and 5. I will argue that evil and suffering by itself doesn't constitute evidence for naturalism over theism. I will present three arguments to that effect. First, I'll take option 3 and argue it hasn't been shown that we should expect evil and suffering on naturalism. Second, I'll take option 4 and present the soul-building theodicy. I'll be making the very modest claim that soul-building makes evil and suffering as expected on theism as on naturalism. Third, I'll take option 5 and argue that, if for some reason we can't fully endorse soul-building, skeptical theism provides a defeater for Justin's central claim. Option 3. Naturalism in Predicting Evil In his opening statement, Justin claims that naturalism predicts all three pieces of evidence. He thinks naturalism predicts facts about pain and pleasure, flourishing and languishing, and horrendous evils. I will argue that we have been given no good reason to expect any of these on naturalism. With respect to pain and pleasure, Justin claims that, given that we humans are composed of parts that contribute to biological goals, it's unsurprising that on naturalism, the bodily functions of pain and pleasure also serve biological goals. This is a bad argument. It's like inferring that since all the other mechanical parts of a car engine are designed to propel the car forward, the compressor is also designed for a propulsion. Uh, this doesn't follow at all. While still mechanically part of the engine, the compressor is responsible for air conditioning, not propulsion. So we need some additional reason to think that pain and pleasure would serve primarily biological roles on naturalism. The next two pieces of evidence suffer the same problem, so we'll cover them together. With respect to flourishing and languishing and horrendous evils, Justin argues that evolutionary processes like those related to overpopulation and bad behavioral tendencies lead us to expect the data. Two responses. First, if we're including these processes and tendencies in our background knowledge, which it seems Justin wants to do, then any hypothesis, including theism, predicts the data. Hence, pain and pleasure don't actually confirm naturalism over theism. Second, if we aren't including these things in our background knowledge, then we need to see an argument for why naturalism all on its own predicts them. What reason is there to think that naturalism simplicator predicts overpopulation in finitude of resources? What about naturalism entails that some people will act in horrible ways? Naturalism by itself doesn't have much, if any, explanatory resources from which to draw. As I've already shown, adding this information to our background knowledge won't help 
because the more information we include in our background, the more probable it is that every hypothesis predicts the data. This is a very serious problem for explanatorily impotent hypotheses like naturalism. I can only conclude that we've been given no reason to expect any of the data on naturalism. Option 4. Theodicy. I will now present the soul-building theodicy. While I think that soul-building actually makes the data of evil and suffering less surprising on theism than on naturalism, I'll be making the more modest claim that it renders the data as probable on theism as on naturalism. Now, I do not intend this presentation to be exhaustive. There's so much more that can be said in defense of it. Nor am I claiming that soul-building is the only good or successful theodicy. There are others I just don't have time to cover, like free will and superlapsarianism. The basic idea for soul-building is that human suffering of all kinds is necessary to achieve the greatest goods. And since God is all-knowing, he is going to know that which is best. So what are the best goods? Here it will help to consider some concrete examples. Consider the case of St. Damien of Molokai. He spent 16 years in the Hawaiian Islands serving lepers before succumbing to the disease himself. In a letter to his brother he wrote, I make myself a leper with the lepers to gain all to Jesus Christ. Next, consider St. Maximilian Maria Kolbe. He was eventually taken to Auschwitz by the Germans for sheltering thousands of Jews. While in Auschwitz, he volunteered to take the place of a man being led to die of starvation in a pit. And lastly, consider Jim Elliot. Jim, a missionary to Ecuador, was murdered by a group of Aka warriors. He was martyred by the very people he was trying to reach. Now, what's fascinating about this account is that we learn he was armed at the time of his martyrdom. Yet, he chose not to kill any of the spear-throwing tribesmen. Now, you may never have heard of any of these men, but there were hundreds of recognized cases like these and countless other unrecognized cases. The goods represented in these examples are love-manifesting virtues. The participation of suffering in their lives was integral to the production of virtues like self-sacrifice, courage, compassion, generosity, empathy, forgiveness, and so on. Every world without significant pain, languishing, and horrendous evil is a world without significant opportunity for virtue. The best kind of worlds are those that permit cases like these. The theodicy itself requires only one axiological assumption, and that is that the best goods are the authentic display of love-manifesting virtues. We often say things like, the past made me who I am, and I'm not the same person I used to be. Our suffering literally makes us who we are. The men in these examples did not wish away their suffering, instead they embraced it. It is in this way their suffering was defeated. Remarkably, Jim Elliot didn't fight the men killing him, he accepted and approved of his suffering. In a famous quote he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. To paraphrase Richard Swinburne, how one responds in life is more important than what happens in life. It's important to note that the embrace of one's suffering is not enough. Suffering has to be integrated in a way that one's life is good on the whole. This brings us to two important clarifications. First, soul building is not, as some believe, about God merely compensating victims with goods that outweigh the badness of their suffering. According to sophisticated versions of soul building, evil is integrated into a morally valuable whole that is incommensurably better than it could be without evil. Second, soul building is teleological, it's forward looking. It looks toward the future fulfillment of God's purposes to explain present evil. As John Hick famously said, no theodicy without eschatology. This means that evil will ultimately be defeated in the afterlife. It is then that we will understand our role in God's cosmic plan and see how the suffering God permitted provided the opportunity to become sons and heirs of God. Objection. Yes, but there's too much pain. Too many people languish on the edge of existence. There are too many horrendous evils. Response. A claim of too much suffering must be interpreted as too much suffering for a finite being to handle such that it can never be defeated or counterbalanced over the course of their entire existence. However, we just have no evidence that any such undefeated evil exists. In the words of Christian philosopher Trent Doherty, quote, It is like inferring that your birth date does not appear in the decimal expansion of pi because it doesn't occur in the first thousand digits. End quote. There's simply no evidence that the degree of suffering and evil in this world exceeds the range predicted by theism. Here is how, despite initial appearances, evil and suffering might constitute evidence for theism. Let a badness ensemble describe all the types, tokens, degrees, and distributions of bads among the population of beings in a given universe. 
Of the various possible badness ensembles there are, the range of ensembles consistent with the opportunity for exercising the highest virtues is very narrow. Theism predicts that we would land in that tiny range. However, in the words of Doherty, quote, it is very unlikely that our world would fall in the suitable saint-fostering range by chance, end quote. Given this fine-tuning argument from evil, it would seem that evil actually confirms theism over naturalism. But I'm not even claiming that. I'm claiming that the evidence is as expected on theism as on naturalism. And that just seems obvious. Option 5. Skeptical Theism We now come to my third and last argument. Suppose in his response Justin manages to raise the conditional probability of the data given naturalism and undermine the theodicy I've just given. Does it follow that evil and suffering provides evidence for naturalism over theism? No. Skeptical theism holds that, given the epistemic chasm that exists between humans and divinity, we should remain agnostic about theism's ability to predict the data of evil and suffering. As an analogy, we might ask the question, if there were extraterrestrials in our galaxy, how likely is it that some of them would be intelligent enough and have the desire to contact us? It seems the only correct response here is, I don't know. We just don't have enough information to answer such a question. Likewise, maybe we just aren't in the right epistemic situation to judge whether God would or wouldn't have reasons to permit pain and suffering. Given the skeptical theist agnosticism, it is unknown whether theism predicts the data. Here are two reasons that might motivate the skeptical theist agnosticism. First, our collective knowledge as a species is always growing. Though science has made great strides, it is undeniable there's a great deal we still don't know. Among the discoveries that lie ahead, it would not be surprising that humans discovered new intrinsic goods. Nor would it be surprising that there would be large gaps, perhaps even thousands of years, between new moral discoveries. So it would not at all be surprising if there were intrinsic goods we are not yet aware of that God is aware of. Second, it would not be surprising to learn that the greater good that justifies something like the Holocaust is so complex that it lies beyond our comprehension. Complexity itself is a great good. When I sit down to watch Chef's Table with my wife, I'm always blown away at how complex the recipes and presentations are. Literature geeks will know that David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest is one of the most complex and beautiful fictions ever written. It would not be surprising to learn that the goods that justify horrendous evil and suffering are so complex we couldn't recognize or identify them. If skeptical theism is true and the proper stance is agnosticism, then it doesn't follow that the data confirm naturalism over theism. At most what follows is that the data confirm naturalism and it is unknown whether the data confirm theism. An additional premise is needed for Justin's conclusion, namely, theism does not predict the data. However, the skeptical theist rejects this additional premise. She holds that we should remain agnostic as to theism's ability to predict the data. Now, one might think that my second and third arguments are incompatible with each other. I won't challenge that. Instead, I'll note that theists can reject one and accept the other, but Justin must reject both. It's not an option for him to rule out one by accepting the other. If he does that, he loses the debate. In closing, I've given three arguments that all pose very serious problems for Justin's probabilistic problem of evil. I firstly argued we've been given virtually no reason, apart from Justin's credulity, to think that naturalism predicts evil and suffering. Second, I argued that Given the soul-building theodicy, the data is no more surprising on theism than on naturalism. Then lastly, I argued that Justin must also defeat the skeptical theist agnosticism. While each of these arguments by themselves are sufficient to undermine his claims, the cumulative effect of all three is simply overwhelming. Until he responds in full to each of these serious problems, it is abundantly clear that evil does not constitute evidence for naturalism over theism. Recall that in my opening statement I presented three distinct probabilistic arguments against the truth of theism. The first argument employed facts about the biological utility of pain and pleasure in moral agents. The second spoke of general facts about the flourishing and languishing of sentient beings. And the third argument shed light on the evidential significance of specifically horrendous evils. It was then incumbent upon Cameron to show in his opening remarks why none of these arguments have any evidential force at all. At least with respect to this first rebuttal in which Cameron provided three arguments he believes succeed to that end, my view is that very little progress has actually been made. Cameron's first response to my arguments is an attack on naturalism's ability to predict the three facts around which my arguments are focused. 
But as a quick note, I needn't show that naturalism predicts these facts in the sense that it makes them more probable, only that it predicts them more than does theism. That will suffice. So first up, the biological utility of pain and pleasure. Recall my claim that because our other bodily systems are oriented toward biological goals, that gives us reasons to think that the systems governing our experiences of pain and pleasure would be similarly oriented. Cameron thinks that this is like inferring that a compressor in a car is designed for propulsion because all other mechanical parts are designed to propel the car forward. But of course, if you actually knew that all other mechanical parts were in fact designed for propulsion, and you had no clue what a compressor did, it would be an entirely fine inductive inference that the compressor probably somehow aided that end as well. Our learning the actual purpose of the compressor does not at all mean that the original inference was a bad inference. It only highlights that inductive inferences are defeasible. Cameron's response to my argument from flourishing and languishing is admittedly on point. I made a technical blunder in my presentation of the argument by explicitly placing facts about the savage competition of life on Earth in our background knowledge. Allow me to correct that error. If we abstract away from the three facts about the flourishing and languishing of sentient beings mentioned in my opening, part of our relevant background knowledge is that evolution is true. But here I use the word evolution in a very specific way to mean the conjunction of these two claims. One, that complex life did evolve from relatively simple life, and two, all evolutionary change in populations of complex organisms either is or is the result of transgenerational genetic change. But notice that this background knowledge should not be seen to entail the three facts about the flourishing and languishing mentioned in my opening. After all, if theism is true, both common descent and transgenerational genetic change could be true while it also being true that my three facts about flourishing and languishing are false. In fact, the existence of an unsurpassably great God suggests that this is what we should observe. For these reasons, and the reasons already mentioned in my opening, given evolution, facts about the proportion of flourishing to languishing in sentient beings are a much better fit on naturalism than they are on theism. What about the argument from horrendous evils? Cameron asks us, what about naturalism predicts that some people might act in horrendous ways? When he should be asking, what it is about naturalism that leads us to be less surprised that people would act in horrific ways or experience horrible suffering than we would be on theism. We treat each other poorly, and sometimes we have bad experiences purely by how the natural world is constructed. But some evils are not just bad, they are positively horrendous. Horrendous evils, when witnessed by somebody with theistic background assumptions, are puzzling, for reasons already mentioned in my opening. The naturalist, on the other hand, recognizes that indifferent and morally blind forces, for example, are unlikely to respect the psychological limits of persons when churning up experiences for them to have. Cameron's second response to my case against God from evil is to employ a soul-building theodicy. Cameron posits soul-building in an attempt to increase the probability of E given theism to be roughly equivalent with the probability of E on naturalism. Cameron, cl Cameron clarifies, quote, The basic idea for soul-building is that human suffering of all kinds is necessary to achieve the greatest goods, end quote. Examples of these goods, according to Cameron, are things like self-sacrifice, courage, compassion, generosity, empathy, and forgiveness. These are moral goals that Cameron thinks God would desire to bring about, even if some suffering is a requirement to do so. To test the ability for the soul-making theodicy to raise the probability of the evil data on theism, we have to examine how it works in response to each of my arguments separately. First up, my argument from the biological utility of pain and pleasure in moral agents. Does the soul-building theodicy increase the theist's expectation that pain and pleasure would be so oriented toward biological goals? If so, how much? Unfortunately, Cameron's response, while thick in narrative, is utterly silent of any reason to think that any raising occurs at all here. In fact, and this is a hugely important point, my initial presentation argued that if theism were true, 
we would have more reasons than our naturalism to expect pain and pleasure to motivate moral agents toward moral goals, like those Cameron labels as soul-building. But that isn't what we see. The whole point of this argument is that the systems which govern our experiences of pain and pleasure, while clearly deeply oriented toward biological goals, also appear morally random. And in this light, it seems of all theodicies to use against this argument in particular, Cameron's choice of soul-building is perhaps the most puzzling choice possible. But perhaps the soul-building theodicy is capable of significantly raising the theist's expectation of my facts about the flourishing and languishing of sentient beings. This is my second argument. Unfortunately, we're not given much insight here either. Cameron, after all, is explicit that the soul-building theodicy is limited to explaining human suffering. But of course, humans are a very recent addition to the total history of sentient life, and as a result, count as a very small proportion of the facts about flourishing and languishing of sentient beings. Therefore, even if I were to grant that the soul-making theodicy raises the theist's expectation of observing facts about flourishing and languishing of specifically humans, its complete failure to do so for the vast majority of sentient beings would overwhelm this gain in the other direction. Moreover, there are other methods, far better methods, that God could have used, given his unsurpassable empathy mentioned earlier, and his unlimited resourcefulness, to achieve soul-building. For example, giving persons tragic visions or dreams which serve to radically transform their character is one such way, and as Christian philosopher Peter Van Inwagen writes, quote, It seems clear that a world in which horrible things occurred only in nightmares would be better than a world in which the same horrible things occurred in reality, and that a morally perfect being would, all other things being equal, prefer a world in which horrible things were confined to dreams to a world in which they existed in reality. Now we turn to whether the soul-building theodicy is capable of raising the theist's expectation or probability of horrendous evils. It's important at this point to remind listeners that horrendous evils, at least according to this argument, are not soul-building. Rather, they are positively soul-destroying. Persons participating in horrendous evils are, as a result of that evil, persons who take on board severe moral injury, such that it leads them to call into question whether their life is even worth living. God, being unsurpassably empathic, would have full knowledge of acquaintance of the soul-crushing reality of horrendous evils. Given that the greater one's empathy, the greater their opposition is to horrendous suffering, God's opposition must be far deeper than us finite persons can possibly conceive. This unsurpassable empathy in conjunction with God's ability to bring about both soul-building experiences and the deepest good of an ever-growing knowledge of him without the use of horrendous evils gives us strong reason to think that on theism we have far more reason than on naturalism to be surprised by the existence of horrendous evils. Put another way, reason tells us that it is contrary to goodness to permit horrific suffering for the sake of an outweighing good that is both achievable through other means and outweighed by a far deeper good which itself does not require that horrific suffering. The third response appeals to skeptical theism, which claims that our epistemic access to the goods which might motivate God if such a being were to exist is rather limited. As admitted by Cameron, the endorsement of skeptical theism is often held to be incompatible with the endorsement of theodicies like Cameron's soul-building theodicy. In short, if God exists and skeptical theism is true, then we shouldn't expect to see, in the broadest sense, God's justifying reasons for permitting the evils that occur. So the fact that we cannot see these reasons cannot count as evidence against God. This response in this context, however, is confused. To be sure, it's clear that if God exists, then there may be good moral reasons beyond our understanding, which serve to explain God's permitting the evils of the world. But Cameron is neglecting to notice that it is equally clear that there may also be good moral reasons beyond our understanding, which count against God's permitting them. 
And so without begging the question in favor of theism, we have no reason at all to think that the pool of unknown reasons as a whole supports the permission of those evils over their prevention. In other words, the unknown reasons end in a tie, and the known reasons, which I've sketched in my opening, serve to break that tie and along with it Cameron's final objection. I want to thank Justin for his thought-provoking response. It allows us the opportunity to get clear on some important issues. Recall I gave three arguments against Justin's probabilistic version of the problem of evil. First, I argued we've been given no good reason to expect the evidence of pain and suffering on naturalism. I secondly argued the very modest claim that soul-building makes the data as expected on theism as on naturalism. Thirdly, I argued that if for some reason we can't endorse soul-building, the skeptical theist agnosticism undermines Justin's claim that evil and suffering constitutes evidence for naturalism over theism. We'll move through each argument and see how Justin has responded. My first argument can be summarized like this. We've been given no good reason to expect evil and suffering given naturalism. With respect to the biological role of pain and pleasure, Justin responds to my compressor analogy by saying this just shows his inductive inference is defeasible. First, that an inference is defeasible doesn't tell us anything about whether it is a good inference. An inference can be both defeasible and bad. Responding by saying it's just obviously a good inference won't work for a very simple reason. It's not obvious to me. Second, even if I did share his intuition, intellectual rigor requires that we expose our inferences to potential counterexamples and alternative explanations. Justin and I both agree that pain is intrinsically bad and pleasure intrinsically good. It follows that pain and pleasure inevitably play a moral role, regardless of worldview. With that in mind, take the following alternative theory. Other biological systems play biological roles, and pain and pleasure play primarily moral roles. As far as I can see, there's no reason to think this alternative is any less likely on naturalism than Justin's. In fact, it might even be more likely. Thus, we can put no confidence in Justin's claim about the role of pain and pleasure given naturalism. Moving on, while I'm happy to see that Justin has noticed and corrected his technical error, we're beginning to see how tricky it is to determine what information to include in our background knowledge. Justin is now at the point where he's arbitrarily including information that helps him and excluding what counts against. The amazing thing is that even after his fine-tuning, we've yet to see any reason to expect flourishing and languishing or horrendous evils on naturalism. Arbitrarily limiting our background knowledge to bare-bones evolution doesn't lead us to expect any of the data. What's odd is that he even admits this. He says that on theism, evolution could be true while it also being the case that facts about flourishing and languishing are false. But of course, the exact same is true for naturalism. Naturalism and evolution could be true while facts about flourishing and languishing and horrendous evils are false. If this works against theism, it equally works against naturalism. I can only conclude my first argument is successful. At best, Justin can say that evil and suffering are surprising on both hypotheses, not that it confirms one over the other. We now turn to my second argument, which is that the soul-building theodicy renders the data as expected on theism as on naturalism. In response, Justin argues that soul-building has problems explaining all three pieces of evidence. We'll take each in turn. In regard to explaining facts about pain and pleasure, Justin says the soul-building theodicy I've presented is the most puzzling choice possible. This is because, quote, if theism were true, we would have more reasons than on naturalism to expect pain and pleasure to motivate moral agents toward moral goals, like those Cameron labels as soul-building, end quote. What are we to make of this ambiguous argument? Perhaps Justin is arguing that experiences of pain and pleasure are the best way to produce saints. God could have given us intense experiences of pleasure when we exercise virtues like courage and empathy, and then intense pain if we fail to do so. If this is the argument, I have at least three complaints. First, it's not obvious that we should expect to experience more pleasure from exercising virtues than we currently experience. It seems to me we experience quite a bit. How much is enough for Justin, and why think he's right? Second, for all we know, more intense experiences of pain and pleasure might eliminate our ability to exercise vices. As a result, we would no longer self-determine our character. That bad-making property isn't necessary on the model I've given. My third complaint is that some of the greatest demonstrations of saintly virtues include or even require the exercising of wrongdoing on the part of others. Here I'm thinking of the exemplification of virtues like forgiveness, patience, and mercy. More intense experiences of pain and pleasure will almost certainly reduce or even eliminate some of the most impressive manifestations of the greatest virtues. 
The more I think about this problem, the less convinced I am that biologically gratuitous pain and pleasure are a good method of producing saints. This is one of the weakest arguments in Justin's arsenal. In regard to flourishing and languishing, Justin claims I was explicit that soul building is limited to human suffering. This is false. I mentioned human suffering, but that by no means limits soul building to humans. Trent Doherty has recently argued that the soul building theodicy can be extended to non-human animals. According to this fascinating thesis, since many non-human animals are sentient and thus have moral standing, the defeat of their suffering must result in their being given rational faculties at the eschaton. Otherwise, they can't come to embrace their suffering. And if you think about it, there's not much reason to think that only humans will experience theosis. God could have created a number of universes populated with rational creatures that will all experience a radical transformation at the end of time. Now, maybe you don't find this convincing because you think non-human animals aren't sentient. If that's your objection, then animal suffering isn't actually a problem and there's nothing left to explain. He then says that God could have used dreams and nightmares to achieve soul building. I find this response wholly unconvincing. Putting aside the question of whether divine deception is permissible, when was the last time your character changed in significant ways due to a dream you had? It's common for me to wake from a dream and think, that wasn't really me or the real me wouldn't have acted that way. In fact, nightmares often lead me to feel gratitude it was just a dream. Furthermore, I find it plausible that someone martyred for their faith might even resent God after learning her valiant efforts and resultant martyrdom were illusory. I see no reason to think dreams and nightmares would be as effective as the phenomenological experience of bona fide pain and suffering. In regard to horrendous evils, Justin claims that the soul-destroying nature of horrendous evils leads us to expect God to prevent them. Now, I agree that God has reason to prevent undefeated evil, However, we have no evidence that horrendous evils are actually soul-destroying. Justin's claim here far outstrips what can rationally be defended on the basis of the evidence. Recall that a claim of too much suffering must be interpreted as too much suffering for a finite being to handle such that it could never be defeated or counterbalanced over the course of their entire existence. We know that some people were utterly broken up until the end of their lives, but that indicates nothing about the permanence of that condition. Calling upon Doherty again, quote, What we do know is that for every type of horrendous evil that has befallen a human on earth, some of the individuals who have undergone them have gone on to flourish as human beings in ways to which their horror was integral. The most we can say about those whose earthly stories did not end in triumph is that they had not yet triumphed, end quote. There is simply not enough evidence to support Justin's claim that horrendous evils are actually soul-destroying. Lastly, recall that I roughly sketched how a fine-tuning argument from evil might look. The number of badness ensembles that are consistent with the fostering of saints is tiny in comparison to all the kinds of badness ensembles there are. Naturalism leaves this up to chance, while if soul-building is true, theism predicts a badness ensemble consistent with the fostering of saints. So far from being surprising on theism, the evidence of evil actually confirms theism over naturalism. Given my first and second arguments, Soul building renders the data at least as expected on theism as on naturalism. How is Justin fared in response to my third argument from the skeptical theist agnosticism? Not good. He says that for all we know, the pool of unknown reasons might actually vindicate the naturalist, so we are justified in using known reasons to assess the probability of evil and suffering given theism. First, the skeptical theist is not appealing to unknown reasons. She is instead saying we just don't have enough information to judge either way, we should remain agnostic about theism's ability to predict the data. This kind of agnosticism is not theism-specific. Anyone, including skeptics, can be agnostic in this way. To help illustrate why this is not a good response, imagine you're thinking hard about the proposition 60% of the world's population is Caucasian. Suppose the data available is limited to your hometown of 10,000 people, which happens to be 60% Caucasian. In a moment of clarity, you realize this isn't enough information to go on and decide the correct attitude is not belief, but agnosticism. Appalled at your humility, Justin admonishes, For all we know, it's just as likely the rest of the world is 60% Caucasian as not. Thus, since our ignorance ends in a tie, we should use the information we do have and align our beliefs accordingly. This is obviously a very bad response, but why? precisely because the very same reasons that motivated agnosticism in the first place still apply. There's still too much we just don't know, and there's no reason to think our sample is representative. This response does nothing to defeat the skeptical theist agnosticism. My third argument remains unscathed in this debate. 
Unless Justin can miraculously defeat all three of my arguments in his closing statement, it remains abundantly clear that evil does not constitute evidence for naturalism over theism. Importantly, the argument from pain and pleasure I presented employed a bit of analogical reasoning. That reasoning moved from the fact that our bodily systems appear oriented toward biological goals to the conclusion that this provides the naturalist with strong reasons, ones unavailable to the theist, to think that those systems governing our experiences of pain and pleasure would be similarly oriented toward biological goals. In response, Cameron expresses a grievance that the inference isn't obvious to him. But while I can take note of Cameron's self-report, I've been given nothing resembling an actual objection to respond to here. Cameron then forwards a different objection, but one based on a confusion between the obvious moral relevance of our experiences of pain and pleasure and the degree to which pain and pleasure are actually morally or biologically oriented which is what my argument is actually about. Regarding my arguments from flourishing and languishing and horrendous evils, Cameron suggests that my parsing of background knowledge is being done arbitrarily. Of course, we cannot help but pick a starting position from which to update when examining data. With evidential arguments like this, no starting point is objectively more or less arbitrary than any other. Unfortunately, I think suggestions like these do little more than poison the well for those less familiar with how these topics work. Cameron's next objection seems to suggest that because I admit that the facts about flourishing and languishing and horrendous evils at the core of my arguments could still be false even in worlds where naturalism and bare evolution are true, my arguments fail. But my admitting this possibility doesn't actually render my evidential arguments moot, one has to deal with the actual reasons I gave in previous sections for claiming that facts about flourishing and languishing and horrendous evils are less surprising on naturalistic worlds than worlds where there exists a supernatural, morally perfect, and all-powerful person. Soul building doesn't change this. Recall that the naturalist expects pain and pleasure to be biologically oriented because this is how other organic subsystems operate. But as previously argued, the moral significance of pain and pleasure undercuts the theist's ability to use this bit of analogical reasoning. That is enough to show that the biological utility of pain and pleasure favor naturalism over theism. While not necessary for the success of this argument, we could go further and say that if theism is to predict anything about our experiences of pain and pleasure, it is that they would actually be oriented toward moral goals rather than biological goals. What about the soul building with respect? What about soul building with respect to my facts about flourishing and languishing? Cameron has given us no reason whatever to think that a coarse-grained theodicy about animal heaven can explain the interesting proportions featured in the three main facts about the flourishing and languishing of sentient beings from my opening. On this issue, Cameron hasn't even broke ground. With respect to my comments about how dreams, visions, and other general forms of religious experience are capable of being morally transformative or soul-building, Cameron embraces a bizarre skepticism, radically out of touch with the reports of soul-building and morally transformative religious experiences had by his own brothers and sisters in Christ. Cameron's misstep also strips God of his unlimited power and resources by wrongly assuming these experiences or their provision would somehow entail a deep deception on the part of God. With respect to horrendous evils, according to Cameron, there simply are no soul-destroying evils because when the afterlife is considered, these evils are ultimately defeated when integrated into a morally valuable whole. But we all recognize that parents who neglect their children in terrible ways, only to later ensure their growth in larger and morally significant ways, are being neither loving nor responsible. Rather, they are putting narrative arcs over the well-being of their loved ones. It's unclear how this view escapes the accusation that it's confused the justification for allowing a harm to befall a person in the compensation of the harmed person after the fact. An eternal heaven or a grand, morally valuable story may compensate some victims of horrendous evil, or even make the world an inspiring place, but it does not justify the fact that it was allowed to occur in the first place. 
Moreover, not only is that conclusion far from obvious, but an afterlife on theism is an auxiliary hypothesis, no more predicted by theism than its negation is. You don't gain explanatory merit by adding philosophically unmotivated details, even if theologically in vogue. In an attempt to go on the offensive, Cameron channels Doherty by claiming that the types, tokens, degrees, and distributions of evil in the world are fine-tuned for soul-making, and that this is just as likely, maybe more so, on theism than it is on naturalism. Rather than get dragged down that rabbit hole, I'll just point out that this far-from-obvious conclusion is perfectly compatible with my arguments also showing evidence favoring naturalism, so it's irrelevant with respect to Cameron's actual burden in this debate. I'll finish my comments by discussing skeptical theism again. We can return to Cameron's analogy and say that we're thinking hard about the proposition that 60% of the world's population is Caucasian, and that the only thing we actually know is that our town has a population of 10,000, of which 60% are Caucasian. That is the data we're working with. We know nothing about the total world population. For all we know, the total world population is 100 or even 1,000 times that. We just don't know. To make matters worse, we don't even know if the 60% figure is even representative of that total world population. We can pretend we're an alien visitor to make our ignorance here more plausible. Now, if we treat the proposition 60% of the world's population is Caucasian as a hypothesis, we might then wonder if such a hypothesis gains any support whatever from the data already mentioned, that 60% of our 10,000-person town size is Caucasian. We should want to ask, then, what some random samples might look like on the 60% Caucasian hypothesis world population. We can ask how likely it would be that any random sample taken from this world would be, say, 30% Caucasian, 80% Caucasian, and finally 60% Caucasian, etc. Eventually, we would conclude that the probability of us getting 60% Caucasian in our random sample is much more likely than getting 30 or 80 in our random sample, if the original hypothesis is actually true. Cameron wants to say that we just don't have enough information and should be agnostic about this hypothesis. But this is incorrect. It may be the case that we have so little information that we shouldn't be terribly confident. That's perfectly fine. But to say that even our admittedly limited data doesn't favor the hypothesis that 60% of the population of the world is Caucasian is to make a probability error. To make this more relevant to our debate, we could also compare the 60% world hypothesis to a separate hypothesis about a different worldly subject and one which makes no statistical predictions about the worldly percentage of Caucasians. Perhaps it's about the number of grains of sand north of the equator. At least with respect to the limited Caucasian percentage data, the sand hypothesis would have very poor explanatory power relative to the 60% world hypothesis, because again, it would be agnostic about those percentages. Let's then bring in skeptical theism here. Cameron writes, Skeptical theism holds that we should remain agnostic about theism's ability to predict the data of evil and suffering. That's great, but I hope it's clear now, though, that even if skeptical theism is true with respect to the data, skeptical theism performs poorly relative to naturalism, which importantly is not agnostic about the data featured in my arguments. I want to thank Cameron for a civil and challenging debate on whether some facts about evil or suffering can count as any evidence against the existence of God. Regardless of where readers and listeners fall on this question, I hope that they too were challenged. Let's once again review the three arguments I gave in my opening statement. First, I argued we have been given no reason to expect the data given naturalism. Second, I argued very modestly that the soul-building theodicy makes the data as likely on theism as on naturalism. Third, I argued that if we can't fully endorse soul-building, skeptical theism undercuts Justin's claim that the data confirm naturalism over theism. Justin remains confident that because other biological systems play biological roles, it's likely that pain and pleasure would also play biological roles. In response, I argued this is like inferring that since all the other mechanical parts of a car engine are designed to propel the car forward, the compressor is also designed for propulsion. In his rebuttal, Justin claimed my compressor analogy merely shows his inference is defeasible. Unfortunately, in his closing remarks, Justin misinterpreted my two responses. First, I argued that nothing follows on its own from defeasibility. Inferences can be both defeasible and bad. 
Justin is required to convince us that his inference is not only defeasible, but good. He hasn't done that in this debate, nor can he at this point. Secondly, I gave an alternative explanation that both accounts for the biological utility of other biological systems and is consistent with pain and pleasure being intrinsically moral. He says my alternative is about the moral relevance of pain and pleasure and not about the degree to which pain and pleasure serve biological or moral roles. This is false. But even if he were right, simply update the alternative to be about degrees and the same exact objection goes through. It looks as if Justin missed the point of both of my responses. Turning to flourishing and languishing in horrendous evils, Justin says that by accusing him of arbitrarily fine-tuning our background knowledge to suit his purposes, I'm poisoning the well. The fact is, the old evidence problem I'm raising is a legitimate problem for Bayesianism. Of the responses to this problem in the literature, bluffing is not one of them. Justin seems to think every axiomatization of our background knowledge is arbitrary and so all are equally valid. But if that's the case, then it's completely legitimate to use background knowledge that renders the data just as likely on every hypothesis. So not only can we validly bypass his entire argument, Justin has just contradicted himself. The only thing we can conclude at this point is that we've been given no coherent reason to expect any of the data on naturalism. We'll now turn to whether soul building renders the data at least as surprising on theism as on naturalism. In regards to theism's ability to predict facts about pain and pleasure, Justin says that the naturalist expects pain and pleasure to be biologically oriented because other body parts are biologically oriented. Sound familiar? He says this analogical reasoning isn't available to the theist. I agree, but only because it's been refuted twice in my first argument. In that sense, his analogical reasoning isn't available to the theist or the naturalist. Moreover, in my rebuttal, I addressed his claim that theism predicts that pain and pleasure play a larger moral role than they do play. Unfortunately, we saw no response to my three arguments in his closing remarks. With respect to flourishing and languishing, he didn't respond to my extension of soul building to animals. I take it that objection has been met. Justin says my soul-building theodicy doesn't lead us to expect the proportions of people that languish. First, I'll reiterate that he has not given us a single coherent reason to think that naturalism actually predicts the data in the first place. Nothing about naturalism leads us to expect that only a tiny fraction of people have access to food and water for most or all of their lives. Justin's plea for precision here is actually a massive problem for his own hypothesis. Second, the fact that most people suffer from lack of resources is not at all surprising on the theodicy I've given. Experiencing a lack of access to food, water, and health provides significant opportunity for moral growth. Individuals are given the opportunity to courageously sacrifice their precious resources for the goods of others. Second, the fact that most people suffer from lack of resources is not at all surprising on the theodicy I've given. Experiencing a lack of access to food, water, and health provides significant opportunity for moral growth. Individuals are given the opportunity to courageously sacrifice their precious resources for the good of others. Communities can together locate cures for deadly diseases. The proportion of people that suffer and languish do not at all exceed the range predicted by theism. As to whether visions and dreams would be an effective means of producing saints, Justin ignored the concerns I raised in my rebuttal and then claimed I am simply out of touch with reality. I suppose all we can do at this point is let the audience be the judge of that. Turning now to horrendous evils, Justin says I conflate compensation with justification. It appears Justin didn't pay very close attention to my opening. In it, I said this, quote, Soul building is not, as some believe, about God merely compensating victims with goods that outweigh the badness of their suffering. According to sophisticated versions of soul building, evil is integrated into a morally valuable whole that is incommensurably better than it could be without evil. End quote. I then combine this with a theory of defeat which includes the embrace of one's suffering. Unfortunately, Justin has attacked a straw man rather than my actual argument. He then says that the afterlife is an auxiliary hypothesis not predicted by theism. This is an undefended assertion. If the soul building narrative I've sketched is correct, there is no possible world where theism is true and there is no afterlife where people are given the opportunity to embrace their suffering. The afterlife is thus a logical concomitant of theism in worlds with suffering. He then laments that the fine-tuning argument from evil I presented is compatible with his argument. This is true, but not in a way that helps him. Assuming his argument favors naturalism and my argument favors theism, the totality of the evidence of evil is thus probabilistically ambiguous meaning the total evidence wouldn't confirm naturalism over theism. 
Now, of course, I've already responded in full to each of his arguments, so at this point, the fine-tuning argument from evil compounds and confirms theism over naturalism. Thus, it remains clear that my first and second arguments render the data at least as surprising on theism as on naturalism. In response to skeptical theism, Justin says two things. First, he says the evidence is likely on naturalism, and second, that even if skeptical theism is true, it performs poorly relative to naturalism. His first claim has already been refuted, so let's take a closer look at his second claim, that if skeptical theism is true, it performs poorly relative to naturalism. First, we should note that skeptical theism is an epistemological thesis, not an ontological thesis. The version I've articulated holds that we should remain agnostic about theism's ability to predict evil. Skeptical theism, therefore, can in principle perform poorly relative to naturalism. But let's assume for a moment that Justin has successfully argued that the evidence of evil is likely on naturalism. Does it therefore follow that the evidence confirms naturalism over theism? Well, if we're agnostic about the probability of evil and suffering given theism, that answer is clearly no. At best, what follows is that naturalism predicts the data, and it is unknown whether theism predicts the data. Justin's second claim is confused at worst and a non-sequitur at best. Skeptical theism can't in principle perform poorly relative to naturalism, nor does it logically follow that the evidence of evil confirms naturalism over theism if skeptical theism is true. My third argument thus remains untouched by Justin in this debate. In closing, all three of my arguments are successful. The first and second arguments combine to create a powerful case against Justin's probabilistic problem of evil. My third argument from skeptical theism has also fared quite well. Justin hasn't given the skeptical theist a single reason to abandon her agnosticism. I agree with Justin that this debate has been fun and challenging. I hope readers and listeners enjoyed it as much as we did. the content and the tone of what really theology has to offer, please consider writing a review of the show on iTunes or contributing a modest amount per episode to the Relay Theology Patreon. The Relay Theology intro music is by Thomas Smith, with all other music by Jason Camo of A Lost State of Mind. We would like to thank our patrons, Matt Smith, Lucas Stewart, Matt Yellen, Richard Kane. Brandon McCleary, John Danaher of the Philosophical Disquisitions blog, Paul Pinos, Kim Bushkowski, Andrew Snyder, Jason McLoetta, Evan Wirtz, St. Nimbus, Bob April, and Alexander Stokes.